From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. From jobs to benefits to anti-terrorism and health policies, we'll explore the impact of the enforcement era on immigration. I would say that enforcement error has gone back more than 30 years in the United States. We're not so different from, you know, other folks. Like, we're just seeking a, a better life for, you know, ourselves and our families. And that's, you know, something that I'm pretty sure everybody is, is seeking for. Then the intersection between healthcare, hospitals, opioids, and cannabis. When it comes to treating pain, that path is not so clear. I made room for the possibility that, you know, okay, fine, let's switch to opiates because this isn't working, so... This was an experiment. This was an experiment, yeah. We'll get unique perspective about the debate in On Something, CPR's podcast about life after the legalization of marijuana. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Immigration policy has evolved in the United States over the past few decades. A University of Colorado's law school professor, Ming Su Chen, says it's shifted toward keeping people out rather than facilitating integration in her new book, Pursuing Citizenship in the Enforcement Era. Ming, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And we're also joined by Salvador Hernandez, Colorado State Director of Mi Familia Vota, an organization dedicated to building Latinx political power through year-round voter engagement. He immigrated to the U.S. from Chihuahua, Mexico, with his parents and siblings when he was 15 years old. Salvador, welcome. Thank you for having me. And Bob Marshall, an assistant professor of engineering at the University of Colorado Boulder, joins us. He immigrated from Vancouver, Canada to attend undergrad at the University of Southern California. He's been in the U.S. for 22 years. Bob, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Ming, you say that we're in the enforcement era. What does that mean? Well, I think the enforcement era is a time when immigration policy is focused on keeping people out, whether that means literally keeping them out at the borders, uh, whether that means kicking them out from the country, um, or whether that means making people feel unwelcome, no matter how long they've lived in the United States. And to be clear, I would say that enforcement era has gone back more than 30 years in the United States. I mean, I would say in the 1980s, there was a big push in immigration policy to exclude people from the workplace. Um, In the 1990s, to exclude people from public benefits. After 2001, to exclude people based on anti-terrorism threats. And the moment we're in right now, I think, is one that focuses on public health threats as a way to keep people out of the country. And what are the themes over the course of three decades that you find lead to those sorts of enforcement policies? I think the relationship between the policies and the attitudes of people in communities are very much related to one another. So a number of times you'll see individuals um, who feel increasing suspicion of outsiders Um, A lot of times that'll be motivated by an economic threat or a sense of cultural threat. And I think that those attitudes do end up being reflected in immigration policies. Now, Salvador, I want to turn to you. Your family moved from Mexico to the United States when you were 15, and that was 15 years ago. Your family was undocumented. Tell me about the decision your parents made to move and what it was like to get established here in the midst of the atmosphere that Ming is describing. Yeah, that, that is correct. My siblings, my mother, and myself moved here in 2005 well, when I was, you know, just uh, right out of uh, my first year in high school in Mexico. But I remember being, you know, like some of the most difficult times that I had lived up until that time. We didn't speak English. We were undocumented. 
And, you know, we had a lot of difficulties, you know, just doing some of the most basic things like buying a car or driving, finding a job, going to school. And on top of that was, you know, the threat of deportation. Fortunately, I was able to benefit from DACA in 2012. But I do remember those seven or eight years being in constant fear of, you know, being deported or not knowing if I was going to have a future in this country or not, which it doesn't really allow you to plan for the long term when you don't know if you're going to be here the next day. And tell me about the reasons your family decided to move to the United States from Mexico. Yeah, my, it, was, it was mostly economic. You know, my, my, my mom was searching for a better future for my siblings and, and, and myself. And, uh, you know, the, just the economic and job opportunities in, in Chihuahua were not there. And we were struggling to, to make ends meet. For an uh, immigrant mother to come with four children to a country that she doesn't know, not speaking the, the language. So it was uh, definitely something that I admire her for and, and thank her for, you know, for making that sacrifice for me. And you described a lot of limbo that you were in. So you're a green card holder now and you're on the path to citizenship. Tell me what that process has been like. When I was, I think like I was like 20, 22 or 23, I can't remember, but I was able to get a DACA. It gave me a permit to work. But before that, I was a, a victim of a violent crime and I had applied for a, what is known as a U visa. And that is a, it's a type of immigration benefit that helps, you know, people who have been victims of different types of crimes, like, you know, like assault or, you know, domestic violence. And it's meant to encourage, you know, immigrants like, you know, myself to, you know, report crime and not feel afraid to contact the police. Through that U visa, I was able to later apply for a green card. And, you know, the process was very difficult. I had to seek legal counsel. I had to get police reports, medical reports. And fortunately, I was able to obtain that U visa. And that put me in the process to get a, a green card. As of last year, I became a green card holder. I'm on the pathway towards getting a citizenship after, you know, those five years that are required. Around 2023, I will be able to apply for citizenship, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm so sorry that you were the victim of a crime. And Ming, a core argument in your new book is that formal citizenship or legal citizenship is necessary, but even becoming a citizen doesn't mean someone has achieved full citizenship in a way. Can you unpack that idea for us? Absolutely. Um, in an enforcement error, having formal status matters more than it might in a climate that is more forgiving and more welcoming of immigrants. And, you know, I think Salvador's story is a great example of that because it becomes important to have citizenship as a threshold to belonging. I'll, I'll let Bob share his own story, but I remember in talking with him and with a number of uh, Canadian immigrants uh, shortly after the travel ban in 2017, that many of them felt the travel ban was a scary wake-up call, even though they themselves were not at direct threat of being deported. And many of the immigrants I met at the naturalization drives that Salvador and Mi Familia um, helps to facilitate were in the same situation. These are all people who were eligible for citizenship, and yet they were very, very worried about the climate, even though they themselves we're not at direct risk of enforcement. So those are a lot of the reasons that I think formal citizenship has become important, but it's still not sufficient. 
beyond having that sense of legal belonging, there is still a sense of insecurity that can compromise someone's social position in the United States, their ability to work, um, to feel like they're on equal footing. And Bob, Ming alluded to your story. You've been in the United States for 22 years, but you have not finished the final step in your naturalization process. Why is that? It's a good question, actually. Um, To a large degree, my story obviously is very different from Salvador's. I had a much more privileged um, situation, both growing up and coming to the U.S., coming as a student, being here for 13 years on a whole string of student and postdoc visas, and then a work visa, and then finally getting green card through marriage. To what Ming said, there's the, the difference between the formal citizenship versus like sense of belonging. I'm in a situation where I can feel, I, I, or maybe I do feel, a reasonable sense of belonging without having formal citizenship. So it's almost a little bit backwards. And that could just be from having been here for so long, but also from being, in a way, sort of an invisible immigrant. People look at me and I don't scream immigrant, right? Not to say that a, a white a white male is what an American is, because I don't believe that. But I think a lot of people see that. And, and obviously, I don't have an accent. So there's no natural inclination to think that I might be an immigrant. Um, so I've integrated very easily. Um, I will say, you know, in the when I see things on the news, and certainly the noise of the last four years, um, I, we hear a lot more about immigration as a quote-unquote issue. That, I think, to some degree drives me to embrace my Canadianness, especially with some of the political and cultural differences between the two countries. And so I think that might be one of the main factors, I think, that has prevented me from taking that step. So, Salvador, Bob mentioned feeling like an invisible immigrant, and by contrast, over the last four years, the rhetoric around immigration policy from the White House has centered on exclusionary measures for people from Mexico, Latin America, and Muslim-majority countries. What influence has that dialogue had on you and your family and the people that you work with in the campaigns for Mi Familia Vota? Yeah, I mean, uh, it has definitely, like, uh, reactivated some part of the population who feel like, you know, the where uh, uh, at risk and, you know, a threat, you know, now more than ever. Um, but it has also sort of like, you know, like empowered me, uh, you know, to to do a better job of what I do. You know, I've been I've been encouraging people to register to vote for the past like five or six years, pretty much since I've been with Mi Familia Vota. And that was one of, one of the reasons why I decided to join um, this organization is because that uh, empowered me to uh, at least feel like I had a say, you know, maybe perhaps not directly because I cannot vote, but, you know, I, I share my story with, you know, with the community and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of Latinos and immigrants who, you know, perhaps were born here or they're first generation uh, immigrants or second generation even. And they identify, you know, with my story and because it's very similar to the story that their parents had and that they went through. And there's a certain refrain from some people that those from outside the United States, if they want to immigrate here, they should do it the legal way. I heard that so many times. What do you say? It's, it's I mean, I wish it could be just as easy of saying, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to the United States uh, the legal way because, you know, the immigration laws that are in place are just so complicated and there's like just so many things and, and it's not that easy coming from a particular, you know, country like, you know, might put you in a different uh, 
path, you know, towards uh, coming here legally than, you know, coming from, you know, another country, you know, like, I think like Bob can, is, is a witness to this being a, a Canadian that he had a, a very different uh, experience from what someone coming from Mexico, you know, has. So it's not as simple as, you know, people might think. So in response to, to Salvador's thoughts, um, I think it's absolutely true that it's not as simple as some people think to come to the United States on a legal visa. Um, I think it's also important to note that it's not as simple as people think once they're in the United States to naturalize and become a citizen. Um, and that's something I really try to underscore in this book. It's what the idea of pursuing citizenship is about. Um, and as Salvador knows, um, it takes a lot of work for people to come forward, disrupt their life, pay a significant application fee, one that has almost doubled in the course of the, the most recent fee hike, in order to take that final step to citizenship. Um, something else that I'm really worried about that I know a lot of community organizers are working on as well is the backlog in citizenship applications. Um, Congress has decided that that process should take about six months. We're at a point now in Colorado where it takes about 10 to 18 months and in other parts of the country more than two years to be able to naturalize. And to be clear, this is for individuals who are already eligible for citizenship. So there are a lot of barriers um, that keep coming down the pipeline. And add on top of that, like that you also have to, you know, be a, a flawless human. You know, if you have any slight of, you know, uh, encounters with, you know, the criminal justice system, then you're judged, you know, as the worst of the worst. And, you know, like you have to almost be perfectly humanly, like never commit a, any type of mistakes and just add to that on top of everything else that Ming uh, uh, mentioned. And then another complicated piece on the path to citizenship, it's especially difficult for people who were brought to the United States as children and weren't documented because there's often not a clear path to citizenship, right? That's right. And I appreciate you bringing up that point because when people think about undocumented immigration, they obviously they sometimes think only about people who came to the United States without papers. But the reality is that at least half and at some points more than half of undocumented immigrants are those who came on legal visas and are visa overstays. So the category of being undocumented is more complicated than people think. Being an immigrant is not simply a binary. It's not just that you're an immigrant or a citizen or undocumented or legal. In fact, there are a variety of different ways to be undocumented and there are a variety of ways to be in legal status. Um, I'm so glad that Bob is part of this, this program because his own life illustrates some of that. He mentions he came here from college, so that would have been on an F visa. And then he worked for a while, so that would have been on H-1B. And then he was in graduate school, so he'd be back on an F. And then it sounds like when he became a green card holder, that was through marriage. And so one, you know, the idea of immigration status is very fluid. And what you find along those paths is that people encounter different kinds of barriers, both the formal ones that we've been talking about, um, but a lot of the substantive ones, too. And Bob, as you navigated all of those different kinds of visas, was there ever a point when you were a little worried about being able to stay in the United States? Yes. Um, although I do want to add, you know, again, my my pathway is so uh, relatively straightforward and privileged compared to Salvador's or people coming from people coming from countries where they're trying to get to the U.S. for a better life. Um, you know, my situation isn't really that. I can't. I come to the U.S. for school, but I could have easily gone to school in Canada 
and it would have been just about as good. So, you know, my, my situation is very different and I keep trying to remember and recognize that. Um, but to your question, yeah, I certainly, I was never, ever, never worried about being deported or anything, but you know, you could be a, a student finishing your degree in engineering, finishing your master's degree in engineering, even finishing your PhD in engineering and jobs are harder to come by. Um, a lot of places are just less willing to hire international people. And if you can't get a job after you graduate, then you have to go home. So that came up certainly a couple of times in my path and that affected my, my career choices. But, you know, things generally worked out pretty well for me. Did you ever feel tied to a job just because they were the ones sponsoring your visa? Yes, absolutely. Um, so changing jobs is uh, complicated by that, of course. My, again, for me, it was not too difficult. I work with a number of students now, though, who are in that situation. I have master students from India and Bangladesh and various other countries. I have a, a postdoc working with me from China. And, you know, a postdoc situation is a, a soft money position where we have to get funding for that job, for his job. And if we don't have funding and he's not at least 50% covered, then he's going to be out of status and be forced to go back to China. My master's students are fantastic engineers with a, uh, just extremely valuable skills in design and modeling for aerospace systems. And they're struggling to get jobs after they graduate. So it, it can be very difficult for some people, even extremely highly educated people, to to navigate these pathways. Yeah, the theme I keep hearing from everyone is just how much limbo all of the ambiguity of the system can put people in. Ming, you interviewed hundreds of people for this book, and you found that some people who were eligible for citizenship decades ago were just in the last few years pursuing that option. What changed for them? In an average year, only about 50% of those who are eligible for citizenship decide to pursue it. And that number has gone up by at least 10 percentage points in the last four years. I think what that shows us is that people feel that they have to become citizens because they can't afford not to. I mean, there might have been an earlier time when people felt that living with a green card could still be a pretty good life in the United States, that they were all but citizens. But these days in the enforcement climate, where every week there's a new immigration policy that might impact green card holders or international students or high-skilled workers, there is a sense that nobody but a citizen is actually safe. And I, I call that in the book defensive citizenship, this idea that you would pursue citizenship as a means of self-protection rather than solely because of your affinity for the United States or your pride in the national identity. And Bob, does the potential to vote make you rethink your decision to sign paperwork to officially become a citizen? Absolutely, yeah. That would be num one of the number one reasons to do it um, and something that I think about uh, obviously, I would if I were to apply now, I would not. There's no chance that I would be able to vote this fall, um, but sometime in the future, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very strong motivator. Ming, your hope is that your book will shed light on the path forward to rethinking immigration policies that go beyond enforcement or exclusionary policies. What does that future look like? Well, I think that this idea of pursuing citizenship is one that should be anchored in integration. Um, and, you know, the phrase that is talked about a lot in the news and in popular conversation is the pathway to citizenship. 
And usually when we say that, we're talking about the literal pathway to citizenship that doesn't exist for undocumented immigrants and dreamers. I absolutely think that should be part of the picture. But I also think that we have to think about a pathway to citizenship for those who are in other categories of immigration status. The conception of citizenship I use in the book is very broad. It goes beyond formal belonging to include social belonging and economic belonging as well. So if we think just about the past year, just this summer, there was a change in policy for international students who might be taking more of their education online. Because of course, in this pandemic, many universities have started to offer some, if not all of their classes online. And so for those international students who many people think are quite privileged because they come usually with ample wealth or at least a secure economic position, nonetheless feel very fearful. They feel a sense of citizenship insecurity that is not that different than the kind of insecurity that, that I think an undocumented immigrant would feel. And similarly, I think for a refugee, many refugees have come to the United States with an assurance that they can eventually become citizens. And yet when I interviewed refugees for this book, people were increasingly fearful. So when I talk about pursuing citizenship, I'm talking about broadening access to being able to belong in all of the senses that comprise um, a rich life in the United States at every point up and down that citizenship spectrum. Well, I just want to thank you all so much for sitting down and having this conversation. Thank you for having this conversation, too. I mean, Citizenship Day is on September 17th. And so I think it's really important for people to be reflecting on the meaning of citizenship. I want to say, um, you know, Salvador, listening to your story is maybe pushing me much more towards getting citizenship. Because I'm, I'm, do it. Yeah. I have I have the privilege and I have the opportunity to do that, and I'm not taking advantage of it. Where people like yourself and and other people that you know are are fighting for that opportunity. So, yeah, and vote. Bob Marshall is an assistant professor of engineering at CU Boulder. Salvador Hernandez is Colorado State Director of Mi Familia Vota. And Ming Su Chen, her new book is called Pursuing Citizenship in the Enforcement Era. When we come back, the healthcare industry is at odds about embracing cannabis to treat pain. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. Despite the epidemic of addiction, opioids are still a go-to medication to treat pain after surgery in hospitals. But not everyone wants to risk getting hooked, and the healthcare industry is at odds about embracing cannabis. We're going to get some perspective on this now with On Something, CPR's podcast about life after the legalization of marijuana. Host Anne-Maria Wad shares the story of a woman named Angela Bryan. I will say that um, the, the second major surgery... I got kind of the funniest reaction because that was the big one. It was my reconstruction. 
Angela Bryan had breast cancer. And as is often the case with breast cancer, she had surgery. After they do the operation to try and save your life, they do reconstructive surgery. It's a second operation to tidy up after the first. They basically give you a tummy tuck and they take the flap of flesh from your stomach and they turn it into a breast, which is fascinating, but extremely painful. So painful that patients in Angela's position are often prescribed powerful opioid painkillers to aid in their recovery. I mean, when someone cuts your abdomen open from hip to hip, I mean, that's a it's an extraordinarily um, intense sensation of, you know, your skin being forcibly pulled together. Um, and so it feels very tight and, you know, stinging and actually the absolute worst thing that would happen during that time is if I sneezed. That was probably the worst pain I've ever felt in my whole life, um, is sneezing during that recovery. Angela was offered opioids, but she didn't want them. She had another plan to deal with her pain. Uh, the The poor nurses and caregivers, I feel a little bit bad for deceiving them, but not really. This is the second story in a mini-series we're calling Medicine versus Marijuana, about the odd ways in which legal cannabis intersects with our healthcare system. Today, we're here to talk about pain. Pain is one reason that America saw nearly 48,000 opioid overdose deaths in 2017. What we know now as the opioid epidemic began innocently enough. It began with people in pain. In the 90s, doctors began to prescribe patients more and more drugs like OxyContin, codeine, or morphine, powerful painkillers that are powerfully addictive. As of 2017, despite national and local efforts to respond to the growing rate of overdose deaths, prescription opiates still accounted for more than two-thirds of those deaths in the U.S. It's the reason more states have turned to legal, regulated marijuana as a possible alternative pain treatment. But here's the kicker. There's not a lot of evidence showing that it works. But that didn't deter Angela. She planned to use weed to deal with her post-surgical pain. And to understand why, you need to know more about her. And what is your relationship with weed like? Like most of us, when I was an adolescent, I had some exposure um, to it here and there. Never really thought it was that interesting um, as a young person. And then didn't really think much about it for quite some time until my mid to late 40s when I was diagnosed with cancer. What, what year was this? Um, this was 2016. 2016. Yeah, end okay. of 2016. And this is like a regular mammogram you're going in for? Um, yeah, and, and I will be honest and say I had skipped a couple of years, and I should not have done that, so get your mammograms every year. Um, and got pulled back in for uh, an ultrasound and biopsy, and, I mean, they knew pretty immediately that it was not good. Actually, it was the ultrasound technician who first mentioned that cancer was a possibility. I, I, I thought that it was nothing, and I thought, no way. No way could this happen to me. I eat right. I exercise like a crazy person. You know, there's no way. 
And so I didn't even have anybody come with me to any of these really? appointments. No, because I thought, meh, it's no big deal. You didn't think anything bad no. was going to happen. So wow. there I am, you know, by myself at these appointments. <laughs> I think the the best word is devastating. At this point, she says it was just a matter of figuring out how bad it really was. Then her care team could determine her outlook, whether or not she was treatable. This took a few weeks of just waiting. I never really believed that anxiety was a thing. I'm not an anxious person. I never have been. What's that like? I always, I always <laughs> thought that, you know, people who had anxiety were just weak. Somehow this didn't feel like a surprise. You've probably gathered by now that Angela is a pretty cool customer. But in this limbo period, where it felt like a lot was hanging in the balance, it was the uncertainty that made her a believer in anxiety. It's a real thing. It's a full body sensation that takes over your mind and your thoughts and your heart rate and your blood pressure. And it, it was crippling. It was really crippling that time in between the diagnosis and finding out whether or not they can treat you. How does a person even wait for something like this? Angela tried all of her favorite activities, hiking, yoga, spending time with her kids. When I was doing all of that stuff and was still just shaking and heart racing and couldn't, you know, slow my mind down, that I started turning to something else. It's actually at that point that um, it was my husband who said, maybe you should try CBD. Actually, his mother had tried it for rheumatoid arthritis to great success. So Angela thought, why not? So you did take CBD. Yep. Yep. How did that work out? When you watch somebody else take it and it works for them, you think, well, you know, placebo effect. I'm mm -hmm. sure it's. <laughs> mm -hmm. And by the way, I'm a huge fan of the placebo effect. The mind is a powerful thing. And so if it works for you, do it. Mm -hmm. um, but, that you know, there was a part of me that thought, you know, well, that might work for her. This is not going to work for me. But it helped. It helped quite a bit, actually. She says... It just made her feel like she could function again. The fear, the uncertainty, it was all still there, but it was no longer all-consuming. Finally, she got her treatment plan. For starters, she'd have to have surgery to remove her left breast. After that, eight rounds of chemotherapy over 16 weeks. Then, over a month of radiation, followed by another surgery to reconstruct her chest. But at least now, there was no more waiting. You have a plan. You know you just have to get through the next thing. You just keep going. The hardest part uh, of all of it was knowing whether it was going to work and whether I was going to get to see my kids grow up. Yeah. I mean, did they give you any sense at the outset of, like, what your outlook was? Yeah. I mean, they, they were pretty confident that they could cure me. But the cure, Angela doesn't like that word, was on the other side of a grueling treatment and a painful recovery. Well, I mean, the, the surgeries are like any surgeries, right? Yeah. So there's, you know, extensive surgical 
pain that happens, recovery from that, and all the surgeons want to give you a bunch of opiates to take home with you. And my personal feeling, knowing, you know, that there's an opiate epidemic, that a lot of people get addicted after surgery by no fault of their own, I didn't want that. Instead, she decided she wanted to experiment with cannabis. So she tried to discuss this option with her doctor. I actually uh, emailed the surgeon through the patient portal and said, you know, I want to talk about cannabis for pain management. And she didn't answer on email. She called me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and she was fantastic. She said, you know, we're not supposed to have you know cannabis products in the hospital. We can't dispense them to you. But if you want to have them and take them, I'm not going to say anything. Hmm. But you kind of can't say anything either because we the nurses could potentially take it. It all has to you. happen under the table, basically. So it's all on the DL, which I found, you know, kind of amusing, but also disappointing. Remember, this was all taking place in Colorado in 2016. Medical marijuana had been legal here already for 16 years, since 2000, and recreational since 2012. This is a state where cannabis is pretty dang legal. But it was still federally illegal, a Schedule One drug. So, by and large, physicians essentially see no evil, hear no evil, say no evil when it comes to marijuana. Don't expect hospitals to stock it, provide it, or even talk with patients about it. So, with the tacit consent of her surgeon, Angela essentially signs up to smuggle marijuana into the hospital. And here's something else you need to know about Angela. She's actually a researcher. Her specialty is neuroscience. And one of the things that she studies in the lab? Cannabis. We have another project, interestingly enough, that we started right before I was diagnosed on cannabis and cancer. Um, We have a project on cannabis and anxiety. I just started another project on the metabolic effect of cannabis and the influence of cannabis on um, diet and physical activity. So Angela Bryan, that's Dr. Angela Bryan to you, is a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience. She studies how the body responds to cannabis when it's used to treat anxiety, pain, or even cancer. But was this the first time that you considered cannabis as like a medicine for yourself? Yes. So I reiterate, actual scientist researching pot in the lab resorts to secretly bringing pot gummies to the hospital. And she's ready to medicate right after surgery. I just immediately, as soon as I woke up, um, took a 10 milligram edible and, uh, you know, just sort of laid back down and let it sink in and and start taking effect. When they wheeled me up to my room, it was probably about 40 minutes after that, and put me into my room where I was going to recover, the nurse sort of looks over at me and says, huh, how are you feeling? I said, I'm okay. And I had a little bit of a grin. And she said, yeah, that's that's interesting. We, we've seen a lot of people after the surgery you just had, and, and your color looks really good. Like, huh. usually people's color doesn't look that good. They look pretty white as a sheet, and, and you look okay. I'm like, yeah, I feel okay. 
After that, she gets moved somewhere else for a couple of days to recover. And it's important to remember that during this time, she can't really get out of bed on her own. Yeah, in the in the hospital, um, my my husband Kent and my mom were kind of the, the team at the hospital who made sure I had my medication huh. <laughs> when I needed it. So and by the way, I didn't know it would work. Even the scientist didn't know whether this would work. And part of the reason is that there's way more research on opioids for pain than there is for cannabis. We'll hear more later about how she's trying to make up for that. I made room for the possibility that, you know, okay, fine, let's switch to opiates because this isn't working. So this was an experiment. This was an experiment. Yeah. And um, what ended up working quite well was going in between Advil, Tylenol and cannabis. So it was kind of I would just cycle between them. So kind of every two hours I'd add one on board. (laughs) I think my providers were a little surprised because they kept coming in are you sure you don't need the opiates? I'm like, nope, I'm good with the Advil and Tylenol. Thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah, to them. You must have just Yeah, been an so I, I must have looked like some weird superwoman to them. The but, lowest um, drug tolerance in all the world. It, yeah, yeah. Just Tylenol for <laughs> just me. Just Tylenol. <laughs> um, I, uh, I have to say, I was in the hospital for something just like totally not even close to this, and I was offered opiates, and I was like, yes. <laughs> A lot of people say that. Yeah, yeah it seems, yeah. it's like... And I, you know, there was fully an epidemic happening when this happened. And I, I, you know, may have paused for like a millisecond, but also like I couldn't imagine saying no to it because what else would I have done? Yeah. And and I'll say two things about that. One is that I um, went through unmedicated childbirth twice. Oh, my God. So I know from pain. Right. And you could take anybody. Yeah. And I (laughs) I know that um, I have a high pain threshold, so I don't necessarily know that what I did would work for everyone. I see. Um, But I I also know um, that I was very motivated that even if my pain wasn't at a zero, even if I was at a two with cannabis, that was fine with me. I didn't need to be at a zero. And so I was very, very motivated to not go down the opiate road. This is one of Angela's big disclaimers. This is what worked for her, and it's not necessarily going to work for everyone. But the bottom line was that she found something that worked for her. And her providers were none the wiser. In fact, they kept offering her opioids throughout her recovery. But she never took them. And I've never taken opiates, so I don't know. Never? No. So I don't know what that, like, how that deals with pain, but I can tell you that for cannabis, it's not that it completely takes all the pain away. Right. The pain is still a little bit there in the background. You just don't care. You're not just thinking about how much it hurts. Right. Okay, so that's how the cannabis worked for Angela. It didn't completely block out the pain, but it turns the volume way down. I was able to decrease my dose pretty quickly after both of my surgeries. So whereas like immediately post-surgery, I was on like 10 milligrams or five milligrams when I was taking a dose. You know, I figured I'm going to take what I need to take. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it, you know, makes me very sleepy. Um, It's hard to be real interactive. And so I was motivated to take only what I needed so that I wouldn't be so dopey. Right, right. Once I was down to like about a 2.5 milligram, then I could do whatever. I could Mm -hmm. answer email and, you know, have meetings and do the normal stuff. (laughs) 
So maybe you've listened to this show before or you are a person in the world and you might be wondering, the answer is CBD, right? Why didn't she just take CBD? It's known for having all of these anti-inflammatory effects and it's not the stuff that gets you stoned. So why instead did she go for the full Monty, THC and CBD? We know that pain is the result of inflammation often. And mm-hmm. so I think part of it is it actually does decrease um, some of the um, inflammatory processes that are involved with pain. And then the THC has the function of making you be able to deal psychologically with the hmm. pain. Like, I know the pain's there, but it's no big deal. So the THC and CBD are a package deal for her. Both provide some benefit. And she argues that it was as effective as opiates might have been without the risk of addiction. It didn't change the nature of it. It just changed the intensity. So it was manageable and it was still there. It was still tight. It was still stinging. But instead of it being an eight or a nine, it was a two or a three. We're listening to On Something with host Anne-Maria Wad. When we come back, Angela's scientific research on cannabis in her somewhat unconventional lab. And does she have any regrets? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Early on in the protests for racial justice, Colorado Matters got reading recommendations to better understand this moment in America. And now we invite you to read one of those books with us. The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter chronicles this idea how whiteness is an artificial thing as well. Pick up the book, The History of White People, then join us for a live video chat with the author, September 22nd. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. We're listening to an excerpt of On Something with Anne-Maria Wad. Before the break, we met Angela Bryan, a professor at CU Boulder, Her research partner is her husband, Kent Hutchinson. In their effort to study the effects of cannabis on pain and anxiety, they encountered some issues, like the quality of marijuana the federal government allowed for research wasn't very good. And the challenges continued even after marijuana was legalized for recreational use in Colorado in 2012. So we we sent in our protocol, and they apparently immediately sent it to the CU legal team, and everybody came back and said, oh, no. You got in trouble. (laughs) You are not allowed to do this. And we said, why not? It's legal. But it's legal at the state level. It's not legal at the federal level. And one of the regulations that governs all um, educational institutions is the Drug-Free Schools Act. And that is a federal act that says that illicit drugs are not allowed on educational campuses. We couldn't buy it, bring it into the lab, give it to people, which is interesting, right? Because, you know, Kent has done a ton of studies where he brings people into the lab and gives them alcohol. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't do it with cannabis because even though it's legal in Colorado, we're subject to the Federal Drug-Free Schools Act. And the consequences for violating that act include they could yank all the federal funding from the (gasps) institution. So Angela and her husband spent three years trying to find a big old detour around this federal roadblock standing in the way of new marijuana research. Our first idea of let's just rent some property off campus. And they said, no, that won't work because once researchers are on that property, it becomes research property. Right. So that didn't work. And so Kent finally said, well, 
if we can't bring the people to the lab, can we just bring the lab to the people? Can we just put it on a van and drive to their house? Like the bookmobile? And that's essentially (laughs) what we have. The Canavan is a mobile pharmacology lab. And the nice thing is that it's ecologically valid, right? Like these are products that people are actually using. These are the products that we need public health information about. In spite of all of the obstacles, the Canavans of the world have made some progress. For example, remember what we were talking about earlier with CBD being an anti-inflammatory? Angela and Kent say they were able to prove that in the lab using blood samples from study participants. Their inflammatory markers decrease. Hmm. And if they're using something that's just THC, we don't see that decrease. A lot of our work is suggesting that... To the extent that there are beneficial effects, the combination of THC and CBD seems to be more effective than either one alone. This finding is pretty consistent with the research that's already out there. It's a theory described as the entourage effect. Although, as tends to be the case with science, every discovery leads to even more questions. But one thing researchers seem to agree on almost unanimously when it comes to cannabis is that more research is needed. Seriously, I feel like that's mentioned in every academic paper that I read for this story, and that's a lot. The bigger problem, and there's really no other way to put it, is that the federal government's policy on cannabis overall is completely unclear, which means states have been the ones test-driving Angela's method, so to speak. In the years since Angela went through cancer treatment, Colorado made it legal for doctors to recommend marijuana as a pain treatment, post-surgery or after an injury, where they might normally recommend opioids. Colorado is the third state to do something like this, despite the uncertainty around the research and the federal policy. Two other states... Pennsylvania and New Jersey allow for medical marijuana as a treatment for opioid addiction. There's not a lot of evidence for that either. I also want to be clear. These laws do not remove all the barriers for people who want to try marijuana as a pain medicine. Doctors, hospitals, they all have the discretion to say no. And above all, your health insurance will pretty much always say no. But Angela says we're in a crisis right now. It's worth trying things that might minimize the damage sooner while we look for answers in the long term. And she says that takes some creativity. I think what it's highlighted for me is that we assume opiates are the only way to treat post-surgical pain. Um, And we need more scientists studying different ways of addressing pain, of Mm -hmm. helping people to deal with pain both pharmacologically and psychologically. And, and this is my own personal bias, is that I think we're too quick to turn to pills, right? Mm. We're too quick to say, I need a drug that will make this go away. We know that people respond to different treatments differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to believe that there's just one thing that should happen for everyone who's in pain and that one thing is opiates, um, I don't think does service um, right. to, to people who are experiencing whatever the condition might be. Likewise, cannabis alone didn't help Angela recover. She's really clear about that. 
In fact, she's really clear in general about the words she uses around her recovery. So remember way back when I mentioned that she doesn't like the word cure? Uh, my oncologist used the word cure regularly. Um, that word makes me nervous because cancer's always looking over your shoulder. Yeah. Um, you know, people think they're cured and then it comes back in their liver. And <laughs> so I don't like that word. I prefer the no evidence of disease okay. word um, or um, acronym, I guess. Uh, and that's where I am now. And I still, you know, to this day, worry about it. You know, when and if it's going to come back. Yeah. On the other side of this whole cancer experience, yes, I mean, is your personal relationship with pain changed or affected at all by this? Um, well, I started CrossFit. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> You're a masochist. Well, <laughs> um, I guess, you know, one figures if I've been through all the things I've been through, why not try CrossFit? <laughs> it seems like it's sort of a badass thing to do. So so why not? Um so I don't know that it's changed, actually. I think um, I think I would definitely, if I, you know, God forbid, have to have um, other surgeries, um, I would do exactly the same thing that really? I did. Yeah. I um, No regrets. No regrets. No. On Something, hosted by Anne-Maria Wad. You can hear the entire episode and others at CPR.org, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.